Mark chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading in verse 11 for us. He, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Father, with our Bibles open now, we pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts to receive its truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I was known growing up for keeping a pretty messy bedroom. In fact, I'm known today for keeping a pretty messy bedroom. Uh, but growing up, you better believe that when my mother entered into my room, the state of that room was quickly about to change. Uh, on Saturday mornings, uh, it was sort of always our, our family tradition that it was chore day, and we all got together and cleaned the house from top to bottom, and it never failed. In the mornings on Saturday, my mom would come into my room, and two things would happen. She'd get the lay of the land, and then she'd lay down the law. And uh, I remember things that she used to tell me, like, I want this bedroom to be clean by the end of the day. I want it looking like the President of the United States is going to be sleeping in your bed tonight. Okay, Mom. Okay. And uh, she was teaching us an important lesson. At the things that God has given us, we must be responsible for. We must keep them clean. We must keep them orderly. And as I thought about that this week, that is essentially what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He, as he wor works his way into the temple, first gets the lay of the land, and then after getting the lay of the land, he lays down the law. He pronounces judgment upon the mess that the chief priests had made of the ministry of the temple. God had had a specific purpose for his temple, that it would be a place where he, as God, could be sought and could be found by 
all the nations. It was to be a place of prayer. It was to be a place of worship. And he had given over to the chief priests that, that sacred, holy ministry to steward the mission of that temple well. They were his people, but they were not pure. He had given them a holy ministry, but they had defiled it. And as we look at this passage, what we're going to see is Jesus is seeking a pure people with a pure ministry. And through the example of what he does to the chief priests in their temple ministry, and then the instructions that he then gives at the end of this text to his disciples, we're going to see the kind of ministry that Jesus judges and the sort of ministry that Jesus desires, all because he is seeking a pure people with a pure ministry. Now, first, we see from this text the ministry that Jesus judges. If you take a look at verse 12 and 13, this passage starts out with this very strange encounter with a fig tree. Uh, verse 12, if you look at it, you see they're, they're making their way back to the temple, and Jesus is hungry. And verse 13 says, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. Jesus is walking along, he sees a tree that looks promising, but it's not the season for figs. I learned in my research this week that in the Middle East, a fig tree could actually bloom and ripen with fruit at any time throughout the year. And one of the classic telltale signs that a tree was ready to bear fruit was the state of its leafiness. Jesus sees this fig tree. It looks promising from a distance. It looks like it has potential. But upon closer inspection as he gets up close, he sees there's no life-giving fruit there. Jesus was seeking sustenance, and all he was given was a show. And what does he do? In verse 14, he pronounces judgment upon that tree. What in the world is going on in why he's doing this? What Jesus is doing is he's creating a living parable. He's using this fig tree as a metaphor for what he is about to do in the temple. The temple, as you looked at it, it would have looked very promising. It would have looked like it had a lot of potential. But as you got closer and looked at it with the eyes of Jesus, you would have realized right off the bat, there is no life-giving fruit here. There is no sustenance, no holiness, no help. Uh, Jesus judges ministry first, we see. Jesus judges ministry that confuses flashiness for fruitfulness. It confuses flashiness for fruitfulness. Uh, fig trees were used all throughout the Old Testament prophetic books as a metaphor for the chief priests and their ministry within the temple. For instance, in, in Jeremiah 8, verse 13, God says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. I gave them this ministry to be responsible for, to steward, and they killed it. It's all gone and rotted away. The chief priests had turned God's ministry into a flashy show 
rather than a means of spiritual fruit. As you walked into the temple in Jesus' day, you would be impressed with all the souvenirs that you could buy, all of the amazing-looking priests that you could consult. When we get to chapter 13, we're going to see the disciples leaving the temple with Jesus, and what do they say? Rabbi, look at all these impressive buildings. Look at all this magnificent stone. They had confused flashiness for fruitfulness. Now, this is not just a problem that happened in the temple, but it is a temptation in the church today, in our ministries, especially in the context we live where we, we are part of the, the sort of the Western, modern, evangelical pop culture. We have our own little Christianity sort of business, if you like. We've, we've made evangelicalism into entrepreneurship. And how easy it is for a church like us to be tempted to think, well, because we have a nice facility, because we have attractive programs, because we have amazing volunteers and leaders, oh, we must be quite faithful. And we sometimes can't even see how we are confusing flashiness for fruitfulness. We need to pray that we would see the fig trees of our lives with the eyes that Jesus did, to get up close and be able to see, is there actually fruit on my branches, or is it just a bunch of leaves? Kent Hughes, in his amazing book, A Liberating Ministry from the Success Syndrome, this is a book that we read as a staff, I think about eight years ago, he talks about his own journey of confusing flashiness for fruitfulness and the change that he underwent in his ministry. When he began in ministry, he started as a church planter. And he, as he gathered everything together, it looked very promising. Listen to what Kent Hughes says. He said that they were beginning their church. He says, optimism ran high. As the fair-haired boy, I was told by friends that great things were about to happen, and it would not be long before the new church would be very large. Such talk enlarged my expectations. I believed it. The people who gathered with us to begin the church were terrific. We left our initial meetings amazed at the array of gifted, hardworking, visionary people the Lord had brought with us. It was such people we expected to grow, and we did things right. Our denomination retained a church growth expert who instructed us in the broad principles and minor subtleties of growing churches. They sent me to seminars on church growth. We obtained aerial photographs and demographic projections, commissioned ethnographic studies. I don't even know what that is. Consulted with the county and chose the target community with painstaking and prayerful premeditation. He goes on, he says, from the start, we had everything going for us. We had the prayers and predictions of our friends who believed a vast growing work was inevitable. We had the sophisticated insights of the science of church growth. We had a superb nucleus of believers and we had me. <laughs> a young pastor with a good track record who was entering his prime, we expected to grow, but to our astonishment and resounding disappointment, we didn't. He talks about his journey as he goes through the book. He says he realized what true faithfulness really was. He says our call is to be faithful. In evaluating success, we must all understand that scripture consistently links success to obedience, our obedience to God's word. What is true faithfulness? Obedience to the call of God through 
the scripture. Not that we be an intentionally boring church or that we seek to be irrelevant, but that we never confuse our cultural relevance with spiritual fruitfulness. Jesus judges ministry that confuses flashiness for fruitfulness. And secondly, we see as Jesus makes his way into the temple that Jesus judges ministry that prioritizes personal glory over God's glory going global. He judges ministry that prioritizes personal glory over God's glory going global. Take a look at verse 15. In verse 15, as he makes his way into the temple, he has his sights set on one thing and one thing alone, attacking the commercialism that had entered into the temple ministry. Verse 15, it says, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Money, money, money. The whole thing had become about making a buck. Buying, selling, business transactions taking place all over the place. Now, just to wrap our minds around this, if you think about uh, Park City Mall, how many of you have been shopping at Park City ever before? You know how large that is. That's a place where you can see a lot of buying and selling going on. Park City Mall is a 33-acre plot of buying and selling. Here, in, this, in the temple where these things were taking place, it was taking place on the most outer part, the outer Gentile court of the temple. That outer court was 35 acres long. So it's two acres larger than Park City, and they're giving Park City a run for their money in the amount of buying and selling that is taking place. In fact, history tells us that the income on any given day in the temple rivaled Herod's temple in Rome. Uh, so these chief priests, they are looking just to make, to, 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 to line their pockets with all sorts of good stuff. And they seem to have no integrity because if you take a look at the, the detail there in verse 15, they over, Jesus overturned the seats of those who sold pigeons. Who sacrificed pigeons? The poor. God had given the, the pigeon sacrifice and he had established that so that poor people would be able to also worship him and offer their sacrifices. He welcomed them in. And here the chief priests are even taking advantage of the poor. Well, Jesus has a sermon to give to these folks. And his text is Isaiah 56. If you take a look at verse 17, he begins preaching to them. And this is what he says. Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. If we would go to Isaiah 56, 1 through 8, I encourage you to read that on your own this week. It was our, our uh, scripture reading in the first service this morning. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 shows us God's desire for all the nations to worship him. Even back in the Old Testament times, he calls the Gentiles to come. He tells them that they can be part of his covenant people. They too can offer sacrifices to him. He has a global plan to bring all the nations to him. He wanted the temple to be the place where the nations could seek and find God. He wanted glory from the Gentiles. 
that the chief priests just wanted their own glory. And they had turned God's house into a place of idolatry. Now, once again, this is not just a temptation that was a part of the temple, but it's a temptation that we can fall into in the ministry here of our church. How easy would it be for us to to slowly, almost imperceptibly begin pulling all of our resources to building a bigger and bigger empire of Grace Church at Willow Valley, building up our brand, as it were, uh, seeking just to to get our name out there and be the best church out there in, in Lancaster County. And we might even do it in a way that we think we're doing it for God's glory when really we have a lot of mixed motivation. There's a word that just gives me the heebie-jeebies when it's used in, in the church. Um, when, when I hear the word, I can't even say it. Ugh. Church business. Ugh. I want to gag just saying it. Ugh. If you look up in Webster's Dictionary the word business, you know what it says? It says business is commercial and industrial transaction. There is nothing commercial or industrial about the living church of God. The church is not a business. It's a missional people. We are to pray and hope that all of our resources would go towards our mission to seeing the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel, starting next door and all the way to the ends of the earth to the last unreached people group that we could possibly have the privilege of being a part of. Uh, I would just finish reading a biography by John Wesley or about John Wesley this week. Um, John Wesley, in his lifetime, he was a household name. I mean, he, he had... His movement blew up that he had over a million followers in his lifetime. The Methodist movement had spread out through all of Britain and even into the American colonies. And you know what he said about himself? He said, I would praise God if the name of Wesley were buried in oblivion, never to be remembered again. And when he died, do you know what, what he was worth? All he had when he died was his pastoral library and the coins that were in his pocket. Here was a man who was absolutely poor in the things of the world, but rich in the things of the kingdom. He did not confuse personal glory for God's glory going global. And these truths ought to sober us because when Jesus pronounces a judgment on something, it is final and it is decisive. Take a look at verse 20. In verse 20, they pass the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the next morning, and what did they discover? Verse 20, they saw the fig tree withered away to its root. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. Here, Jesus, once again, a metaphor, an illustration of what he was going to do to the temple and the temple ministry. It was a precursor of the, ministry's de- of the temple ministry's demise. When we get to chapter 13, verse 2, we're going to see Jesus say, do you see all these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another 
that will not be thrown down. The temple ministry had been defiled, and Jesus had essentially said, you are done. And what has Jesus been doing ever since that? Ever since A.D. 70, which we know is the date that the temple was destroyed? Ever since, through his life, death, and resurrection, through his redemptive work in the gospel, Jesus has started a new building project. Jesus has been busy all these centuries building a new temple, not one made with physical hands, not a physical temple, but a spiritual one, a temple made up of people from every tribe, language, and tongue. Paul tells us about it in Ephesians 2. He says, you, the church, are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And all this because he is seeking a pure people with a pure ministry, a people who have been purified by his redemptive work, by placing their trust in the forgiveness of sins and the redemption that is found in and through his blood, and having a pure ministry empowered through the Holy Spirit that has come to dwell within so that we can do ministry for the glory of God with a heart that is concerned to obey God. Uh, all by his power. Well, all of that has been the ministry Jesus judges, but uh, in the latter half of this text, he gives his disciples instructions on the ministry that Jesus desires, the ministry that he desires. And first of all, we see in his instructions to his disciples that he desires ministry that is God-centered and seeks his power through prayer. Notice the contrast. If you take a look at verse 18, in verse 18, what were the chief priests focused on in their ministry? Verse 18, it says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were consumed with themselves, with losing their platform, with holding on tight to the power that they had in and through the temple ministry. Jesus, on the other hand, when he begins his instructions for his disciples, starts in verse 22 by telling them to be God-centered in their ministry. Verse 22, he says, have faith in God, not in yourselves, not in your own know-how, not in your own methods, faith in the Lord, God-centered ministry. And this Faith and trust in the Lord, he says, will be exemplified through prayer. And not just ordinary run-of-the-mill prayer, but wrestling prayer, faith-filled prayer, eager prayer. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus tells us what kind of prayers he wants his disciples, his church, to pray. Verse 23, he says, Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. We must be a praying church if we long to see God's power at work. I was reading a biography recently 
of a pastor who lived in Scotland in the 1800s, and he was enabled in his day to see an amazing revival in his town. And in the biography, someone asks him, what sort of sermons were preached, and and what were they about that, that caused this revival to take place? And you know what he said? He said, we can talk about the sermons that were preached, but a better question would be, what were the prayers that were prayed, that the Lord blessed, that brought revival down. See, it is a truth that a church without prayer is a church without power. A church that does not pray is a church operating on the basis of the flesh and not the spirit. We need the power that God alone can give in and through us. I heard Alistair Begg tell a group of pastors recently that prayer is the work. Ministry is just reaping God's answers. When people walk through our doors, Grace Church, I wonder sometimes, do they leave sensing that we are truly a praying church? Are we a church that really, earnestly, wrestles with the Lord in prayer. We, we need to be praying. We need to be praying for the teaching of the Bible that happens, whether behind here in the pulpit or in an ABF class on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or even down in kids' worship as the children are being taught. We need to pray that in our children's ministry from the very earliest ages that is possible, that God would grab the hearts of our children and convert them, give them new birth, that they might find salvation in the name of Jesus. We need to pray in our student ministry that our teens would not be consumed with the things of this world, but that there would be a fire lit in their hearts to want to do amazing things for the kingdom, to leave high school and go into college and geared towards doing kingdom work and not building up themselves to just make a great name for themselves. We need to be praying for the parents in our church who are raising kids. We need to be praying for older adults in our church that they wouldn't waste the last years of their lives but would be on mission. We need to pray for the outreach of our church, that God would help us to build bridges with the lost so that we might see them saved. Pray for our missionaries who are out on the outer edges of the world, that they would be given much fruit and blessing in their ministries. To the degree that we are a church that will trust God will be the degree to which we will be a praying church. And if we find that we are not a praying church, it's probably a sign that we're trusting in something else other than the Lord. Jesus desires a ministry that trusts in God and seeks his power through prayer. And secondly and lastly, in verse 25, we see that Jesus desires ministry that prioritizes relational holiness with God and others. Jesus desires ministry that prioritizes relational holiness with God and others. Take a look at verse 25. In verse 25, Jesus closes his instructions to his disciples by saying, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
Jesus here is teaching us that those are who are his disciples take sin seriously. That we want to be in a pure relationship with God our Father. And an integral part of our relationship with him is our relationship with each other and with others on the horizontal plane. That we be holy in our relationships with one another. And he tells us this hard teaching that if we will receive forgiveness, we must be a forgiving people. That those who have received God's forgiveness are those who impart forgiveness themselves. This isn't the only place he teaches us this. He teaches us uh, this in the Sermon on the Mount as well after he teaches us the Lord's Prayer. And he tells us, your heavenly Father will forgive if indeed you forgive others their trespasses. It is a telltale truth that a begrudging and unforgiving spirit kinks the flow of ministry in the church where we're not all walking towards the same goal, towards the same mission, towards the same ministry, but that we're estranged from one another. When that happens, the flow of the ministry of the church inevitably gets kinked up. And Jesus says, pursue this relational holiness with me first and then with others as well so that you may maintain the mission and the ministry and all because Jesus is seeking a pure people with a pure ministry. So Grace, as we think about this, we want to be a pure people. We want to have a pure ministry. Let's pray together and let us always keep in the forefront of our faces, in our hearts, in our ministries, the mission that God has given to us to see the lost saved and the saved transformed by the gospel. And in so doing, keeping our core values central so that we don't become a ministry that Jesus judges, but that we can stay and be even more fruitful, a ministry that Jesus desires. Our four core values being God's glory, our focus, the Bible, our authority, the gospel, our passion, Christ's church, our family, and if I can add a fifth unofficially, prayer, our power. Jesus is seeking a pure people with a pure ministry. Today, this morning, as we pray and as we respond, we give our hearts afresh to him to say, Lord, make me pure that I might serve you in purity.